Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. From the Cell to the World by Art Middlecoff. A question I commonly hear from home educators, both men and women, is how to integrate spirituality with the mundane tasks of home and work life. The preacher of Ecclesiastes said that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. At some time or another, we all crave a deeper and richer experience of the eternal God. And so we find ourselves folding the laundry or balancing a spreadsheet, and we ask ourselves, why am I doing this? Is this really the abundant life that Christ came to give? Charlotte Mason used the figure of the Old Testament tabernacle to model the human person. Life, she wrote, like the tabernacle in the wilderness, has its three courts. First, there is the outer court, where living things blossom and bear fruit, eat and drink, and sleep and play. So much of our time is spent here eating, cooking, and caring for our children's bodily needs. Then, there is the holy place, where not all living beings walk, but only mankind, because men are able to think and love. This life also is sustained upon Christ, who is our life. As Charlotte Mason educators, we believe that ideas emanating from our Lord and Savior, which are of his essence, are the spiritual meat and drink of his believing people. And so we share the banquet of living ideas with our children and our friends. But Charlotte Mason says that there is something more. She says that within there is the Holy of Holies, where man communicates with God and consciously receives in Christ the life of his spirit. Here, Christ is not just an influence or an idea. He is a person. Mason writes that it is in that holy of holies where man performs his priestly functions. For every man is of necessity a priest, bound to officiate in his most holy place. We each carry within us, according to Mason, a temple dedicated to the service of the living God. But how do we officiate in this most holy place? How do we invite Christ in? My local church hosted a women's retreat, and I was asked to speak about Catherine of Siena. I took a specific angle with the talk. I chose to speak on how to reconcile the desire for a peaceful and contemplative life with a call to ministry to the family and the world. It is the story of how one young woman discovered that the true Holy of Holies is not made of brick or stones. It is a cell within our heart. She discovered her priestly functions within that holy place. And you can discover it too. Listen on to hear the message. I shared. So let me tell you a little bit about Catherine. So in 1347, so let's, this is the 14th century. Think about the, the tumultuous century that that was. So that was the century where the Black Death came to Europe. It was a century of, of, of war, a century of disease. And right in the middle of that century, in 1347, uh, Catherine Benincasa. So she was born 
in, uh, in a town called Siena in Italy. And uh, so that's in the section of, of Italy. Uh, Siena is in, a, in the area called Tuscany. Has anybody here ever been to Tuscany? Yeah, a couple of folks. So we, we, the, probably the most famous um, city in Tuscany is Florence. And uh, so Siena is about a, an hour train ride away from, uh, from Florence. And so she was born there in Siena. And she was born to the family of her father was a wool dyer. Um, so that made him pretty solidly middle class. So he had a comfortable living um, and uh, had this family business. And uh, she had a lot of brothers and sisters. She was the youngest in this family. And uh, she was uh, always kind of known to be a very friendly, um, very uh, strong, you know, very lively personality, very memorable. As a young girl, people who would meet her would, would, would she had a reputation in the neighborhood. Um, and at six years old, um, she was asked to go on an errand to uh, deliver a message to one of her older sisters who is now married. So she's six years old, she's going to see her older sister. She went with her old, uh, a brother who was maybe a year or two older than him. So the two of them are going for a walk, and Siena is, they called it the town of three hills. And so whenever you go somewhere in Siena, you're kind of going down, and then you're going up. So she and her brother, to go find her married sister, they, they went down the hill, then they went up a hill, delivered the message, then they're kind of on their way back. And when they were at the top of the hill, ready to kind of descend to go back, Catherine, at six years old, she looked up over the church, and what did she see? But above the church, she saw a vision of Jesus Christ um, with some of the uh, saints and disciples with him. And so she beheld Christ in this vision, and she said that he looked at her with the most loving smile that she had ever seen. Didn't say anything but looked at her with this loving smile, and then Christ made the sign of the cross to her, like we have at the blessing at the end of the service when the priest makes the sign of the cross. So she saw Christ blessing her without words. And she was enraptured with this incredible spiritual experience. Now, as she, she stopped dead in her tracks when she observed this vision. Her, her brother kept going. And uh, assuming that she was keeping pace with him, he's surprised to see that she was no longer by his side. So he stopped, and he turned around. Now he's like 20 or 30 feet ahead of her. And he turned around, and he said, Catherine, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? Like, come on, let's go. And that shout, that voice from the real world, that voice from the earth, you know, the earthly, it broke her experience of the vision. It distracted her, and she no longer saw Christ above the church. And she burst out. She said, why, Stefano, why did you call out to me? If you had known what I was seeing, you would not have disturbed me. And so here we find a pattern that was to characterize Catherine's life, but I think it characterizes all of our lives, right? Have you ever been in one of those moments where whether it's, whether it's you're, you're reading the Bible or you're in a time of prayer or you're listening to some beautiful music or you're at a retreat and, and you reach this kind of place of feeling like, oh, I am just in kind of this 
this rhapsody, this sense of spiritual goodness, and then, and then something calls out to you back, back to the earth. You know, whether it's a, the phone rings, or a worry comes up, or somebody comes to grab your attention, says, hey, mom, I need this, or I, give me this, do this for me. And it creates this tension. It's like, why, if you had only known the, the peace that I was experiencing, and now these voices are calling me back to the earth. And she didn't like that, right? She didn't like that. Do you like that when that happens? I mean, can you relate to what I'm talking about? Have you ever had that moment? Do you like it when you get that interruption and when, when you're kind of, you're, you're, you're understanding some theological truth or you're experiencing some sense of spiritual comfort and then something just calls you back? It's not, it's not pleasant. And she wanted to recapture that. She wanted to get back. And so as a young girl now, she never forgot that vision. So then at seven, eight, nine, she's like, well, how can I go and find that place where Stefano, my brother, is not going to call me and no voice is going to call me back to earth? How can I get that? And so she started to hear stories about the Desert Fathers and how the Desert Fathers would go and find these remote places and they would become hermits where they were completely shielded from all the voices of the world. And she said, I, maybe I can find that, that experience again if I do that. So as a little girl, she would start to go and try to, she'd go out into the woods and she'd try to find a cave or a place to go in because she wanted to try to live in this, in this isolation. You know, but then the day would end and she didn't know how to take care of herself off in isolation, so she'd have to come back home. But she was yearning and seeking for that solitude because she wanted to be with the Lord. In the same sense that, you know, Stefano had called out to her, she received a different kind of distraction when she was 12. Because 12 is the age in that time and in that culture where she was going to get ready to be married. And she didn't want to get married. She didn't want to be devoted and living with another person. She wanted to be focusing her attention on the Lord. And uh, she didn't really get a say, though. And so her parents started to invite young men over and tried to get her to look attractive to them because they wanted to get an advantageous marriage. And uh, she, she saw this tug and this pull into the, the, the world and into people, and she saw herself becoming, you know, out of control, not being able to influence what was going to happen to her future. But she did figure out one thing. She figured out that being attractive was kind of the key to getting a husband, and, uh, and hair, you know, long hair was, was the sign of, you know, being an attractive and desirable woman. So at 12 years old, she did what little she could do to kind of control her own future, and she cut off her hair. And that absolutely infuriated her parents because they wanted her to get married. Her parents wanted to you know, win this power struggle. And they understood what she was, they understood why she was going off to the caves. They understood why she was seeking all that time of solitude. They said, okay, you know, if, if you know, we're going to play this game. We're going to see who's going to win. We know that the thing you desire more than anything else is solitude and that time alone and that time of prayer. So we're going to take that away from you. We're going to take that away from you. And so her biographer who wrote about her life after her death. So this was written in the 14th century, the priest, the confessor who was associated with her her whole life. Here's what he describes happened to her. 
It was decided that from now on, Catherine was not to have a room of her own and was to be kept busy doing housework so that she would have no opportunity for praying and for uniting herself with her bridegroom, her bridegroom's Christ, so that she would realize she was in disgrace. The maid was given a rest, and Catherine was made to do all the dirty work in the kitchen in her place. And every day she was deluged with insults, taunts, and jeers of a kind especially designed to hurt her feelings as a girl. So now it's not just the voice of a brother who's calling her away. Now, systematically, her whole family has designed a lifestyle to prevent her from entering into prayer and entering into that peace that she longed for spiritually. So what do you think happened at that point? You know, did she, was she defeated? You know, did, she, did she yield and say, well, maybe sometime later... Maybe I have to do what I'm being told to do, but someday I'll be able to return to my intimacy with the Lord when someday I'll grow up and I'll be able to leave home and I'll be able to go find a, 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 a place, a room where I can pray in. Did she say that's going to be some future date? Like I can't live, the li- my lifestyle is incompatible with contemplation and with prayer because of the circumstances around me. Is that what, do you think that's how she responded? Uh, it's fascinating. Here's what happened. Again, her biographer described what happened to this young girl when all of her opportunity for solitude was taken away. He writes, The age-old adversary, whose guile and malignancy had started all this, imagined that he was triumphing over the girl. But in fact, he was only making Catherine stronger, for she was quite unperturbed by all these upsets. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she began to build up in her mind a secret cell which she vowed she would never leave for anything in the world. She had begun by having a room in a house which she could go out, and go out of and come in at will, now having made herself an inner cell which no one could take away from her. She had no need ever to come out of it again. Catherine built for herself a cell not made with human hands, helped inwardly by Christ, and, was so, and so was untroubled about losing a room with walls built by men. And then uh, Raymond Capui, or her, her biographer who's writing this, he describes how, what he learned from her. He said, I remember, it has just come into my mind, that whenever I used to find myself pressed with too much business or had to go on a journey, Catherine would say again and again, make yourself a cell in your own mind from which you never need come out. So have you ever been pressed with too much business? Have you ever had to go on a journey? We don't really talk about journeys so much these days, but we do talk about travel. You ever have to travel? It breaks that sense of peace. So what was Catherine's advice? Make for yourself a cell in your mind so that you're not dependent on the circumstances, so that even when you're on the road, even when you're on a plane, even when you're pressed with business and worries, by the power of the Holy Spirit, form that place in your heart, that room where you can meet with the Lord and not be dependent upon the circumstances that are around you. So her parents, unable to win this battle, and realizing that all of their 
pressing her with duties, taking away her privacy and so on, was doing nothing to lessen her resolve, um, they finally um, allowed her to take her path. And so she decided to join a Dominican order called the Sisters of Penance um, and became what's called a mantelate. And normally the, the mantelate is called a third, uh, third order, a tertiary order. Um, these are, these are um, it was a religious order of women who, they didn't go and live in a convent. They, they, um, they, they generally served within the community and it was typically widows who would join this order. Um, so these would be women who had been married, lost a husband, and then decided that they would devote themselves to service and to, and to not remarrying. And so they would um, take up what's called the mantle or a cloak, a special cloak that they would wear that identified them. And so Catherine, now approximately like 16 or 17 years old, it was unheard, you know, very strange for a young girl to want to join this order that was mostly widows and, and older women. But that was, uh, she felt called to join that order, and that was her way of, of determining and her parents recognizing that she was never going to marry and that was the lifestyle that she was going to lead. And uh, her parents at this point, you know, yielded and her biographer writes that at this time she was now finally given a little room of her own in which she could pray as much as she liked as though she were living in solitude. And with what ardor she sought her bridegroom, no tongue can tell. So now she was given a room. And I've been to Siena, and I've seen um, the, the house and the shop where her father, the, the wool dyer, um, lived in the business. And the, the, the room that she was given is still available there. And you can look in and see. And you can imagine when you go there, the, the amount of time that she spent in just consistent prayer and study and adoration of the Lord. And it is said that once she was given her privacy back, that she spent all of her time there. She spent from day in and day out, um, she slept there, she ate there, um, constantly in prayer with that communion with the Lord that she had wanted ever since her vision had been disrupted at six years old. Uh, the only time it said that she would leave was to go to church on Sunday morning. But the rest of the time she was in this profound state of prayer and worship and adoration. And she was allowed to live this way for three years. So if you can imagine that. And it was bliss for her. It was everything she wanted. She finally had that. But then, shockingly, after three years, she suddenly felt a call from the Lord telling her, you need, you need to come out. You need to come out. And uh, her biographer wrote, a soul that has tasted how sweet the Lord is finds it very difficult to detach itself from this perfect sweetness. So I don't know if you've ever experienced that as well, that sweetness. And it's hard to detach yourself from it when you receive that call from the Lord that says, it's time to come out. It's time to come out. And she said in prayer, she said, why, sweetest bridegroom, are you sending me away? Woe is me if I have offended your majesty Here's this little body of mine. Let it be punished at your feet before you. But do not let me be obliged to endure this harsh punishment of being separated from you, my most loving bridegroom, in any way or for any time. Why are you sending me away? Don't you want me here with you in constant prayer? And then here was the Lord's reply to her. I have no intention of cutting you off from me. On the contrary, I wish to bind you more closely to myself by the means of love of your neighbor. 
You know that the precepts of love are two, love of me and love of the neighbor. In these, as I have testified, consist the law and the prophets. I want you to fulfill these two commandments. You must walk, in fact, with both feet, not one, and with two wings fly to heaven. And so the Lord called her just to be with her family, just to step out of the room and be in the rest of the house. So what did she do? She took that command seriously. God said, I want you to love your neighbor. That's part of how you love me. So it says, she began to apply herself with the utmost humility to the lowest kinds of housework, sweeping, kitchen work, anything. And what a splendid sight it must have been. But she was busiest when the servant fell ill. Then she redoubled her labors, looking after the invalid and doing the housework in her stead. The wonderful thing is that even though she was so busy, she never for one moment lost the delights of being with her heavenly bridegroom. For she seemed to be so naturally inclined to unite herself in mind with him at all times and places that no matter what kind of work she was doing, she was never deprived of his embrace. As the flame cannot but rise upward, so her spirit, inflamed by the fire of divine love, tended as though its own nature towards the things that are above where Christ sits at God's right hand. So do you see, even while she was doing these, these labors around the house, these simple chores, I do a lot in the homeschool community, and I remember talking with a, with a mother who's a homeschooler, and, and she was saying, you know what I really don't like doing? She said, I really don't like folding the laundry. Like, if I could just have that part of my life back, like all of the hours that I spend for my whole life folding the laundry, if I could just have that back, that's what I would really like. Because it's like, how can you, how can you see the, the higher meaning and the greater glory when you're doing, when you're doing that, those kinds of chores? Um, but here's what Catherine herself wrote in a letter. She said, if you tell me, if you tell me, if you complain to me, if you tell me about the great concern you must have over temporal things, I answer that things are only as temporal as we make them. I've already told you that all things come from the highest goodness, so everything is good and perfect. I don't want you evading hard work under the plea that these things are temporal. I want you to be conscientiously concerned with your attention directed as God would have it. I remember uh, at that church plant, you know, we were small, and, and everybody had to volunteer to pitch in, and so I helped make the bulletins. And I'm busy. I'm a busy guy. I've got, you know, I want to spend my time in prayer. I want to be reading the Bible. I've got, I want to be playing with my kids. I've got my job. And it was like Holy Week, and we had all these bulletins that had for, for you know, Maundy Thursday and for Good Friday and the Easter Vigil. And I'm sitting here at my computer, and I'm like, how, you know, it's like, you know, edit this, line this thing up, move this thing around, change the font size. I'm like, how is this serving the Lord? Like, what, what am I doing here? Like, playing with these pixels and this keyboard and this, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then I remember these words of St. Catherine. Things are only as temporal as you make them to be. I was doing hard work, and Catherine said, I don't want you evading hard work under the plea that these things are temporal. Do these things with your attention directed to God. So she got in the rhythm of serving her family and going outside of her cell and being in the rooms of the house, but then the next stage happened. The Lord called her to go outside of her house, outside of her home. And the Lord called her now to start caring for the sick in Siena. And so she began now 
it's probably, she's probably about 19 or 20. And so now she started to go through the town of Siena and to care for the sick and for the suffering and for people who the doctors had abandoned and whom no one else was caring for. She would find the most needy person and put her devotion and effort into caring for them. For them. Why did she do this? What was her motivation? Again, she describes this. She herself wrote this. She's writing this kind of in the voice of God. So think of this as a message from God. And just as she loves me, just as she loves the Lord, and just as she loves me in truth, so also she serves her neighbors in truth. Nor could she do otherwise, for love of me and love of neighbor are one and the same thing. Since love of neighbor has its source in me, the more the soul loves me, the more she loves her neighbors. Such is the means I have given you to practice and prove your virtue. The service you cannot render to me you must do for your neighbors. This, thus, it will be evident that you have me within your soul by grace when with tender loving desire you are looking out for my honor and the salvation of your neighbors by bearing fruit for them in many holy prayers. So one love of neighbor and love of God, one and the same thing. And so she operated out of that. And, um, you know, in, in, in Siena there was a bell that would, that would ring when it was, you had to be indoors. So there was a bell that would ring in the morning when you were allowed to go outside. And there was a bell that would ring at night when it said you have to be inside. And so there was a path, there was a hospital kind of on the other side of Siena. And so she would go, leave her home and go to the hospital and take care of people. And then she'd have to get home, you know, before the bell was ringing. And uh, so there's a story, maybe it's a legend, I don't know. So there was this story that one night she had to rush home after caring for the sick uh, before the bell rang. And so she's running and she's going down this flight of stairs and kind of the legend is that a demon or the, like the devil or somebody like pushed her as she was going down the stairs. And that spot is marked, there's a cross marked in the marble stairs um, where, where this is said to have happened. And um, so I got to see that and have a nice picture of my daughter there as we were looking at the cross on the step. But she's running back to get home in time after caring for the sick. So she did this for quite some time and then God called her to an even wider sphere. First it was serving the family, then it was serving her community. Then God called her to an even different scope. And this calling uh, came in the form of, again, a vision that she had. And in a letter, now in her own words, in a letter she describes what that vision was. And I'm going to go ahead and and read um, how she described it in her letter. Love, love, love one another. Be glad, be jubilant. Summertime is coming. For on the first night of April, God disclosed his secrets more than usual. He showed his marvels in such a way that my soul seemed to be outside my body and was so overwhelmed with joy that I can't really describe it in words. The fire of holy desire was growing within me as I gazed. And I saw the people, Christians and unbelievers, entering the side of Christ crucified. In desire and impelled by love, I walked through their midst and entered with them into Christ, gentle Jesus. And with me were my father, St. Dominic, the the beloved John, and all my children. Then he placed the cross on my shoulder and put the olive branch in my hand as if he wanted me 
And so he told me to carry it to the Christians and unbelievers alike. And he said to me, tell them, I am bringing you news of great joy. So she received a commission, not just to now serve in our community, the sick and the dying, but to bring the message of the gospel. Tell them, Catherine, go and tell them, I am bringing you news of great joy. She was to proclaim the word of God. She was to be a messenger. And so she went and she traveled and she went to Florence and she went to Rome and she went to other towns of Italy. And what happened? Where she went, hearts turned to the Lord. People went from darkness to light. Unbelievers confessed faith in Christ. Here's a description now of, from Raymond of Capia, her biographer, who traveled with her on these journeys as she would travel to different towns. And here's his eyewitness account of what, of what would happen. He said, I myself more than once have seen a crowd of a thousand or more men and women as if rallied by the sound of an unseen trumpet crowding in from the mountains and the country districts around Siena just to see her and hear her. And when they heard her or even only had sight of her, their hearts were pierced by sorrow for their evil deeds. Weeping and grieving for their sins, they ran in search of confessors, of whom I myself was one, and then confessed their sins with a deep contrition which showed how mighty a flood of heaven's grace had been poured out within their hearts. Such scenes I witnessed myself, as I said, not once or twice, but over and over again. So she fulfilled that commission that she was given. So now she was serving in this, the wider sphere um, for the whole, all of Christendom, really. And she was concerned about um, the state of affairs in the church, and she was in Rome. She had listened to God's voice calling her out of solitude to bring Christ with her in ministry in the world. And she wanted others to come with her and to serve the church in Rome. She wanted others to make the journey that she herself had made. So she was friends with a very spiritual, very godly man who lived in England. His name was William Fleet. And he was a, a hermit, kind of lived in a small community of hermits so in the woods. So he and a few other men lived in that. They were kind of like living in that solitude that she herself had experienced in that cell back in her home. They lived in the woods and they enjoyed constantly being in the Lord's presence in prayer and contemplation and study in this perfect, peaceful, idyllic place in the woods. Do you like being in the woods? Do you like the quiet? Maybe you could spend a whole day. If you didn't have all the distractions and concerns and stuff of the world that draws your attention, could you imagine just being able to have a day just, just in the woods, just praying and thanking God all day long? That's what William Fleet did. He loved it. He loved it. That was his lifestyle. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that perfect peace? Catherine said, William, we need you. We need you here in Rome. We need godly men who are going to come here and pray and help the church. William, will you come? Will you come? And here's what she wrote to him. We have the letter that she wrote to him and his brothers in the woods in England. 
She said, we see that church in such great need today that it is imperative for you to forget yourselves and come out of the woods to help her. Once you see that you can produce fruit for her, you mustn't stand there saying, but I wouldn't have my peace. Then she got a bit more aggressive. She said, the time has come now to see who are God's servants and who are not. Do they seek themselves for their own sake? Do they seek God for the selfish consolation they find in him and their neighbors for their own ends to the extent that they see them as a source of consolation, a reason for not losing consolation? And do we think God can be found only in one place and not in another? I don't think so. It's my experience That for God's true servants, every place is their place and every time is their time. When it's time to abandon their own consolation and embrace difficulties for God's honor, they do it. And when it's time to leave the woods and go into public places because God's honor demands it, they go. Just as the glorious St. Anthony did, he loved solitude very much but he nevertheless often left it to encourage other Christians. God's servants have always acted this way, going out in times of adversity, but not in times of prosperity. In times of prosperity, they run away. And in times of adversity, they run in. Right now, we don't need to run away for the fear that things are so prosperous that the wind of pride and vainglory will blow us away. Because at this point... No one can glory in anything but difficulty. Come, William. We need you. And then towards the end of the letter, in frustration, she said, one's spirit is rooted pretty shallowly if it would be lost simply by going to another place. It would seem that God is partial to locality and can be found only in the woods and not somewhere else in time of need. And William said, no. He said, no, I can't serve you in Rome. I can't leave my woods. This is where I have my peace. And so she was left without that help. Apparently, William had never discovered that secret of developing that cell within his own heart by the Holy Spirit, that he could experience his communion with God and faithfulness with God even in the midst of of Stefano, his brother, calling him out, even in the midst of his parents telling him to do chores, even in the midst of eating with the family and going out and serving the sick and going on the road to Florence. He had never discovered that. You know, when I think about my own life, um, and how I would like to pray. And, uh, you know, I I love to be in churches, you know, places that are beautiful and designed for worship. You know, they they help me to enter into this sense of of holiness and the presence of God. It's easy to feel that in in a sacred place like this with the beautiful art and so on. So early on in my marriage, you know, I said to my wife, Barbara, I said, um, you know, I, I want to experience, you know, more of the Lord in my life, I need a place where I can do that. 
Like I, you know, I want to be praying, but, you know, I don't, I don't feel like praying in the bedroom. I don't, you know, the living room. That's where we do this other stuff. Like I want some kind of place. I want my woods. I'm like, William, I want my place. And so my wife is super loving and super generous. And she said, okay, you know, hon, I'll, I'll build you a little place. And so in the basement, she made this small little prayer room for me. Um, and it's lovely. It's absolutely lovely. And it has this nice curtains and a little altar and a kneeler and candles. And uh, so I, w- I would go there. And, and the beauty of the curtains and, and the, you know, the, 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 the different pictures that I would have on the altar, the candles, and, and I would go into that place. And, and it would just, it's like God was there, you know? God was there. And I could enter into prayer and I could, you know, as the smoke would go up from the candles, I could feel my spirit rise up. And I loved it. And I felt myself growing deeper into relationship with God through this little room. But, you know, God called me to do many other things, you know. I had to travel. I've had to go in my career. I've had to go to Australia 20 times. I've been to India many times. I, you know... I get busy, I'm staying in hotels. The airplane doesn't have a chapel. I go to a hotel and my little candles aren't there. I had to learn the lesson that Catherine learned. I had to learn to take that cell with me. I had to learn that the Lord is not only to be found in churches, he's not only to be found in prayer chapels, he's not only to be found in the woods or by the lake, um, but that God is to be found in a busy, noisy hotel in Bangalore, India, that God is to be found in a noisy hotel in Chicago, that God can be found in an airplane. You know, we can ask ourselves the question, or we can say, you know, if only... You know, I would cultivate that deeper communion with the Lord if only my life was more peaceful, simpler, if only I didn't have these responsibilities, if I only didn't have to travel, if I only didn't have to do these chores, if I only didn't have to do these activities, if I only didn't have the phone calls, then I could develop that communion with the Lord. But I think what the Lord is asking us to do is to not say, if only, but I think he's asking us to say, even though, even though even though I have these responsibilities, even though I have these distractions, even though I have these chores, even though I have these demands, even though I'm out there doing the ministry that God has called me to do, even though I will still cultivate that relationship with the Lord and meet Him in my heart. This place in the heart which um, Catherine called the cell, and she encouraged people to find that, that cell in their hearts, that place in their hearts that they could meet with the Lord that they could always take with them. And uh, here's how she described it in a letter to one friend, as she was encouraging how to cultivate this place in the heart. She's telling her, her friend how to do this. She says, do you know how you ought to act? Just as you do when you go to your physical cell at night to sleep. First, you go to find your cell, and you see that inside is the bed. It is clear that you need your cell, but your cell isn't all you need. No, you turn your glance and your longing to the bed, where you'll find your rest. 
And this is what you have to do. Go to the dwelling, the cell of self-knowledge. There I want you to open the eye of your understanding with loving desire. Walk across the cell in your heart and get into the bed, the bed in which is God's tender goodness, which you find within this cell, within yourself. Surely you can see that your existence has been given you as a favor and not because it was your due. Notice, daughter, that this bed is covered with a scarlet blanket dyed in the blood of the spotless lamb. Rest here then and never leave. Amen. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.